First John chapter 2. We are learning about going deeper with Jesus. That's John's desire is that those who believe would be able to go deeper with the Lord. He says in 1 John 5, 13, these things have I written unto you that believe in the name of the Son of God. You already believe. You're already believers. You're already born again. But I'm writing them to you that you might know that you have eternal life. And that through that, because you have that assurance of your salvation, that you might believe on the name of the Son of God. You might keep on trusting Him, that you'd go deeper with Him. And so John has been sharing this desire with us in chapter 1 about our need to go deeper with the Lord, to be in a deeper place of fellowship with Him. And then when we get to chapter 2, he starts explaining how we gain that assurance of salvation. And it is, it is through these three tests that he's going to, to go over in the rest of the letter. And so John gave us the first test, the moral test or the obedience test in the first few verses of chapter 2. And he explained that the normal growth path, the normal path of progression for a Christian is obedience. If we are growing in our obedience to God, then it shows that we are truly different, that we've been born again. And then last week, we started looking at the second test, the love test. That, in other words, that a claim to be in fellowship with Jesus while at the same time hating a brother is a contradiction. But the love test, we only got through half of it. It's not about just not hating. I think probably one of the most common responses I get when I talk to someone about why they think they're going to heaven they will say, well, I don't, I don't hate people. I'm not like bad people. But the love test isn't about just not hating. It's about loving others. And so this morning, we're going to examine what it means to love others, and, and we'll be able to find assurance for our hearts as we examine ourselves to see if we're doing that. So chapter 2, we begin in verse 7, just to kind of get context. Brethren, he says, I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment which you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is past and the true light now shines. John started off with the, uh, explaining the love test by talking about this paradox of God's command to love others. Love is an old commandment because we hear it from the moment we get saved. We need to love others. We need to love one another. But love is also a new commandment because our understanding of what that looks like is progressive. We're learning it more and more day by day. And so in light of that idea that we have this paradox in our world that the, the darkness is passing away, but it's still here. Jesus is shining, but not raining yet. We live in a paradox, but we're being changed more like Jesus, less like the world. In contrast, though, if someone's not progressing in their love for others, but professing to know the Lord, John says that's a problem. Verse 9, he that says he's in the light and hates his brother, these two things are simultaneous. He goes, he's in darkness even until now. Now again, we had to explain what hate is and what it is not. Hatred is not hating what someone does does not mean hating them. In Revelation chapter 2, verses 4 through 6, it says very clearly that Jesus says, listen, I have a problem with you guys. You have left your first love. There's no love in your church. You're not loving people. But then he gets down a couple verses later and he says, but you have this going for you. You hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. And that was a group that was engaged in false teaching and wrong behavior. And so he says, you hate their deeds. So it's okay to hate deeds, but it, it's, we need to love people. So Hatred is not hating what someone does. Hatred instead is when I have strong feelings of dislike for a person, when I lack enthusiasm for a brother or sister in Christ, or when I treat a brother or sister in Christ in an unfriendly way, or even like an enemy combatant instead of my family. 
And there's a problem with that. Because if there are people in the body of Christ that you refuse to interact with or you're unfriendly toward, or when you think about them, uh, you constantly think about how much you don't like them, well, then that's time to have an honest conversation with the Lord. We need to let Him change our heart. Now, that's just the negative side of it. John's goal is to give us assurance, not tell us we're not saved. His goal is to give us assurance of our salvation. So while the, this first half of the test exposes if we need to get right with the Lord, again, saying, well, I don't hate my brothers and sisters in Christ doesn't bring assurance. We need to look at the second half of the test to find our assurance. So he says in verse 10, he that loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no occasion of stumbling in him. He that loves is similar to he that says he's in the light. The person who's constantly staying in the light, but at the same time hates his brother, that's a problem. But the one that's constantly loving his brother, he says, you abide in the light, and there's no occasion of stumbling in you. So what does it mean to consistently and constantly love a brother? Well, that's that word agape, that word that the Bible coined when it describes love. Agape speaks of devotion, affection, holding someone in high regard. And none of those things exist because of what you get back from that person. I hold them in high regard because they hold me in high regard. I have affection for them because they have affection for me. I'm devoted to them because they're devoted to me or some other where we're connected. That's not what this love describes. It's a God kind of love, unconditional love, self-sacrificial love. And this devoted, affectionate, high-regarding, self-sacrificing love acts in the ways that Paul described in 1 Corinthians 13. So let's turn there real quick and just take a look at how Paul describes the way this type of love acts. Now, some of you were here last week thought, wow, I couldn't get creative enough to get a new Scripture reading from last week. I read it, had read it again because we're, we need to go over it again. So when we get to this place in verse 4 where Paul is now going to describe what this love acts like, this devoted, affectionate, high-regarding, self-sacrificing love, he says it's patient and is kind. We had a, a phrase at Bible college every once in a while when someone was not being a loving, we would say, Jesus is nice because he is. Like everywhere you see the word love here, you can put God because God is love. So God is patient and kind. Jesus is nice to people, right? So love, when we love and we have care for someone, true love, we're going to agape love, biblical love, God's love, we're going to be patient and we're going to be kind to them. He goes on and he says, love also, he says, it does not vaunt up itself or it does not brag on itself. It does not envy others. It's not puffed up. You know, a lot of times we think about bragging, and I think we misunderstand it. I talk smack when I'm, I'm competitive, and I talk smack. I went out, if I'm playing with my brother, even though my brother beats me at ping pong every time we play, I still talk smack. And then when he beats me, he lets me know he always beats me. And there, that's playful banter. There, there's not unkindness in that. There's no lack of love when we do that. What the idea of bragging on yourself is the idea that you're talking about how you do all the right things. It looks like this, like in your marriage. When you say things like, well, I wouldn't have done that if you didn't do this, honey. I wouldn't have acted that way if, if the kids didn't act that way. Bragging on myself is when I talk about, I don't do anything wrong. I do all these right things. I do all these right things. You guys are the people that do the wrong things. 
It's a very self-satisfied, self-indulgent idea. Love doesn't brag on itself like that. Love has a humble attitude about itself, and it thinks to itself, it's like, okay, what can I do better here? Not what can you do better. Love also, it says, it, it does not, it's not arrogant. So isn't that the same thing as bragging on yourself? No. Arrogance is, is where you're, you're self-sufficient. Arrogance is, arrogance is I, I said it for service, I don't know if it's probably more funny than correct, but you know, I'm probably not designed well to have children. Well, I, I am not because I'm a man, but that's not what I mean. <laughs> for real. So, but I, I mean in the sense that my personality is not designed to come alongside this little person who's not, doesn't know what I know. I'm not like wired that way. Like I'm very task-oriented, goal-oriented, and I'm very like, this is how my day is going to go oriented. And so I was not the dad when the kids were little that when the kid came up and it's like, hey, dad, what are you doing? What are you building? Can I help? I'm not the dad who got excited about that. Like my immediate thought is this is going to take twice as long as it was going to originally take me. And now I have to bump this thing off. I was going to do later today to tomorrow or some other day. That is very selfish, of course, very arrogant. The idea, well, what, you, like, you couldn't learn anything from the little guy? No, I couldn't. I will be much faster without him. <laughs> but what arrogance and self-sufficiency, why it's unloving is because it's, it, it forgets the concept of just being with a person. It loses complete sight of it, and it's so, so goal-task, self-oriented, self-accomplishment-oriented that it loses sight of what it means to just be with another human being that God created, that God designed. I have said and done so many things that you think about later on as a parent that you just you kind of cringe when you hear your voice in your head reminding that you, you said that. Like you, you hear another younger parent say something, and you go, ooh. I said that so many times to my kids. I'm such a jerk. <laughs> love isn't like that. Love enjoys the being. Love is willing to lay down its plans to be with someone else. I'm not saying be irresponsible. I think the best way that I can describe what that looks like is differently than how I did it negatively is when I would take the kids grocery shopping. When I take the, when I go grocery, first off, when I go grocery shopping, Bev never gives me a long list because it's going to literally be me on the phone with her every item and be like, okay, which one am I picking up? Which brand? Tide. Okay, there's like 17 types of Tide. Like, which one am I getting? Bleach or no bleach or whatever. Okay, well, there's like, do we want rose scented? Do we want no scented? Like, which, which one am I getting? And it usually ends up with a picture like this one. And I do that at like every other item that I have to pick up. And so she does all the grocery shopping, the family, she's incredible at it. I am inefficient. All right. So I just get small lists. But every once in a while when the kids were little, she would have me go out and get things. And when I would go out with the kids to take them grocery shopping, it was party time. Because like there, there is no efficiency going on here if I'm alone. So they're not holding me back. They're literally as skilled at doing this as I am. And so <laughs> with truth, and so, <laughs> like, I, I will take Ari to the store with me, and I'm like, which aisle is this on? Like, she doesn't even drive, but she's, she's just as good at it as I am, probably better. So, we're having a good time. I'm like, hey, go get that off the shelf. Hey, you know, or we're whipping around. Like, 
And then I basically untrained the kids, everything Bev's trained them when she takes them to the store. But just the being, seeing the smiles on their faces, you know, and they laugh as you spin them around, they're trying to hold on, you know, and, you know, they, the joy they get from going to get something, just the being. You know, I had so many other things where it wasn't like that. Arrogance is not self-sufficient. It understands that we're, we need to be connected to others, and not just to get stuff done, but because we're designed to give our lives away to be in relationship with others, and not just ourselves. Love does not behave itself rudely. It does not seek its own. That's the older I get, the more that one hits me. And then King James says it's not easily provoked. Literally, there's no easily there. I think the King James writers, the, the translators, they thought that was too harsh, and so they're like, well, maybe he means easily provoked. No, just stop adding to the Word of God. It says is provoked. In other words, love doesn't have any buttons you can push. Love doesn't have this mentality that says, you know, we're good as long as you don't push me here. That's not love. That's selfishness. That's pride. Love does not keep a record of wrongs, thinks no evil is what King James says. What it means it keeps no accounts of evil, does not keep records of evil. I had one pastor was describing a counseling situation he had to me, and he said uh, the couple was coming in, and the husband got there first, and, and wife was running a little late, and he said, so what's, what's going on with you guys? He said, well, our main problem is my wife is historical. And he goes, I'm sorry, did you say your wife has a problem being hysterical? And he goes, no, no, she's historical. And then she walked in, and she had a big journal she was carrying, and she set it boom, down on the table or the desk, and it came in the course of the conversation. This was everything her husband had done wrong. Most of you probably don't have a journal. I mean, if you do, you need to go burn it when you get home. But, uh, <laughs> but we kind of mentally journal. Beverly is one of the hardest people to argue with because she's one of the most forgiving people. She is the most forgiving person I've ever met. You can't argue with her because she won't remember what happened a week ago. She forgives and she forgets. I've learned so much how to treat people with forgiveness just watching her do it with others. Doesn't keep a record of wrongs. Doesn't treat with people based on their record of wrongs. And then here it is, love does not rejoice in iniquity but rejoices in the truth. We hear a lot today about love in the sense of inclusiveness, not from the sense of, in the sense of, like, we just, we love you no matter what. Like, everyone's included in my love no matter what you do. But the idea of inclusiveness that we're going to love what everyone does. That is not love. That is not love. That is the opposite of love. It's, it's I don't want to do anything difficult. Yeah, you're messing up your life, but I'm not going to step in there and make this uncomfortable for me or for you. Love does not rejoice in iniquity. It never, it's never proud. And again, I bring up that word because it's a word we hear in certain circles today. It is not coincidence that the word pride or proud is used in various types of life decisions. We need to be inclusive in the sense that we go, listen, God loves you and Jesus died for you. Jesus died for the sins of the world. That includes you. And I'm in the same boat as you. I need a Savior just like you need a Savior. And if you'll repent of your sins and receive Christ, just like I repented of my sins and received Christ, then we're family. 
But I'm not going to tell you you're okay the way you are because I wasn't okay the way I was. Because I love you. Love does not rejoice in iniquity. It rejoices in what's true. Love bears all things. So even when someone doesn't respond to love, it bears up under that. It, it just keeps on trucking. And then it believes all things. It believes the best, even when it looks like things are the worst. And then it hopes all things, even when you find out the thing you thought was the worst is the worst. It believes the best, but then it, it expects God to keep working even though it's not the best. And then it endures all things when it feels like your hopes will not be satisfied. We want to get down to the nitty-gritty of love? You want to really get down to the nitty-gritty of love? It's when all hope from the rational eye is gone and you still endure and you love them. It's one of the reasons I could never believe that Jesus didn't die for everyone. It's one of the people, sometimes they raise the question, like, why would Jesus die for someone that he knew would never receive him? Because he loves like this. That's why. That's why. Why would Jesus die for someone he knew would never receive him? Because his love never fails. His love always endures. Even when all hope is gone. It's who he is. He just loves. It's what he does. And when you gain a deeper comprehension of that, like it blows you away to the point where you're like, I can't just give up on this person. I can't just write them off. I can't just not love them or I can't just not be friendly to them or, or be unkind to them or, or you know, have an aversion toward them because I don't see any hope of anything changing. In fact, it's pretty clear it will never change. Love never fails. Now, we read through all that stuff and deeply convicting, right? But we read through it, and the reason that it, it brings assurance is because none of that's possible in the natural. None of that. So if you're progressing in that, that's evidence of supernatural work in your life, that you're born again, because none of this is possible in the natural. I cannot be in darkness and love anything like this. Jesus has to be inside you, changing you by His Spirit for you to love like this. And so if you are loving like this, if you're progressing and growing in love like this, then it proves something. John says, it proves that you abide in the light. If you're loving like that, there's a consistency, there's a growth, there's a progression, there's a constancy in that, then it shows that you're abiding in the light. And we learned a couple weeks ago that that word abiding, abiding it means you make, you're making your home you're making your home in the light. And who's in the light? God. God is light. John told us God is light in him is no darkness at all. And it says in verse 7 of 1 John 1, if we walk in the light like he's in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Christ is cleansing us from all sin. So it proves that we're in fellowship with Jesus. It proves that we are connected to him. It proves that something supernatural's happened. Now, does a genuine Christian fall short of God's love sometimes? Well, yes. Right after he says that, he says in chapter 2, verse 1, my little children, these things I write unto you so you don't sin. I'm writing to you so you understand that love's important and you keep on growing in love. But if you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So do we fail to love like this sometimes? Of course we do. Christians do. But even though a Christian might fall short sometimes, 
A Christian's life is characterized by progressing in living out the command to love one another. There's a constant growth. There's a consistency to loving others, and there's a confession of sin when we fail. Now, that's a radically different picture than the one painted in verse 9, right? The person in verse 9 is saying, I am in the light, but I hate him. That's radically different than this, you know, which is saying, it's not making a claim to be in the light, it's just growing in love. Now, while this progressing in love, uh, when this progressing in love uh, describes my life, then I have a wonderful assurance of my salvation, for John says there's no occasion of stumbling in that person. The occasion of stumbling here, it means the trigger of a trap. Me and Bev were on, on an island for anniversary, I think, and Anna Maria Island, and it was our 25th. And um, we were at a beach area that had breakfast, and there were these kids, and there were, there were seagulls everywhere because they were trying to get scraps of food. And they were trying to trap a seagull in a box. And so they had the box or you know, plastic box or something, and then they had a stick and then a string tied to it, and they had food inside, and they're trying to lure the seagull in and then, you know, and trap the seagull. Well, this, the, the, the log with the, the stick with the string tied to it is what this word describes. And there's no trigger of a trap. This is the stick with the string tied to it. It's the tripwire across the ground. It's the perfectly framed question designed to get you to incriminate yourself. When we sin, the tripwire of our conscience is sprung. It's sprung. And God designed our conscience that way so that we run to Him when we sin. So the thing is, if I'm consistently loving others, if I'm growing in my love for others and confessing my sin when I don't love others, there's no wire inside me to trip. Now, that doesn't mean my heart might not still condemn me. Our hearts are, are, have problematic still, so it still condemns us. And the enemy will certainly still condemn you. But the idea is the job of the conscience has already been done. Paul was able to say on numerous occasions, I have a clear conscience before God and before men. Paul, what are you talking about? I mean, you still sin, right? You still fail. Yeah, but I have a clear conscience. You know, the Bible tells us in, in the book of Hebrews that based on what Christ did, he said, let us come near. Yeah, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Our hearts have been washed, you know, with a, with a pure, we've been given a pure conscience now. So I, I don't have that tripwire going all the time trying to drive me to Jesus to get saved anymore because I am saved. I can have a clear conscience. So even though my heart condemns me and the enemy certainly condemns me, I don't need to listen to either of those things because God's greater than both. We'll learn that later in 1 John chapter 4 when he says, listen, if our heart condemns us, beloved, God's greater than our heart because he knows all things. My heart's limited in knowledge, but God knows everything. And based on what he did on the cross and my faith in that, I can have a clear conscience. Not because I never failed, but because he never failed. And I stand in him. And so I can know that I know that I know that I'm born again. If you're progressing in loving others, then stop listening to the enemy. Stop listening to your heart and just rest in the finished work of Christ because you're clearly His. If you're loving like this and growing in that, then you're not part of this present evil world even though you still exist in it and it still influences you. So yes, do you still have a lot to learn about love? Yes, but you are learning. You are learning. And that's what Christians do. 
But does a baby pop out and just be like, all right, where's the cooking utensils? I'm making dinner. Where's the exercise bike? Like, he doesn't, the baby doesn't pop out knowing exactly what to do. They learn, they grow. Sometimes the enemy gives us this impression that as we're learning to walk and we're stumbling around, that God just whacks us and goes, don't do it like that. Come on. How old are you? No. In the same way, you know, my child, as they learn to walk, you know, when they were little and they might stumble around and boom, fall on their face, what do you do? You laugh at them? Do you yell at them? Better not. You go, we grab them. Be like, hey, come here, it's okay. Come on, let's do it, let's do it again. Let's do it again. You know, one of the most freeing things I ever heard, and I heard a pastor say once, he said, if, if you're stepping out in faith to trust the Lord for something and you don't hear correctly, God's not going to condemn you. He's just going to lovingly get you back on track. Isn't that freeing? In contrast to a Christian who's constantly learning and growing in love, it's what we do, someone who's not saved is blind to their need to grow in love for others. And so John closes out this test with a reiteration here, verse 11. But he that hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he's going because that darkness has blinded his eyes. The person in verse 9 that constantly professes, I'm in the light, man, I'm in the light. Me and Jesus are good, but refuses to repent of their dislike for others, their unfriendliness to, or aversion to other believers. That person, John says, they are in darkness. They presently exist in darkness. In other words, it is they walk about in darkness. They behave. They go about doing life in darkness. In other words, while for the Christian there is a paradox, yes, we're in the world, but we're not of it, where darkness influences us, but the light's influencing us, and we're growing. For the person who's not born again, there's no paradox. There's no paradox. They've heard the old commandment to love one another, but there's no progress. There's no change because they aren't just in the world. They are still like the world. And so John says they don't even know where they're going. Literally, it's no not is in the perfect tense, which means they have not ever known where they're going. They've never began the journey. They've never, they've never progressed along the normal path of a believer. So why is this person has never progressed on this path. And John explains why at the end of the verse. He says, because that darkness, that present evil world, it has blinded their eyes. There's a story that Jesus, we, we read about Jesus in the book of John. When Jesus was exiting the, southern, the temple by the southern steps and he saw the man who was born blind and the disciples asked their very insensitive question, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born this way? And then Jesus corrects them, heals them. Well, there was an uproar about this because they're like, isn't that the blind guy who's usually at the gate of the temple? And like, he's like, yeah, it looks like he sees now. And so people are asking him, like, can you see? He's like, yeah, I can see. Jesus healed me. Well, word starts getting around, like, Jesus, Jesus healed a blind man? Like, he couldn't see, and now he can see? Yeah, he was born blind. He wasn't just like he looked at the sun too long today. Like, he was born blind. And so word gets to the Pharisees, and you're like, this is bad. This is bad. 
And so they bring him in and they grill him. They're looking for some loophole. Don't even care the fact this guy couldn't see for his entire life, and now he can see. They're trying to find some loophole where Jesus did some aspect of the healing wrong so they can basically discredit Jesus. And so they grill him and they can't come up with anything. They're like, get the parents in here. Let's ask them. Was he really born blind? And they're like, well, you know, I mean, he's an adult now. You can talk to him. And, you know, we really don't want to get excommunicated for being Jesus people. So, so they bring him in again. And they start grilling him the same questions. And finally he just goes, why are you asking me the same stuff over and over again? He goes, do you want to be his disciples too? <laughs> blind man one, Pharisee zero. Oh, you want to talk about the opposite of love? They're indignant. <laughs> yeah, you were all together born in sins. You know, we, know, we know this guy is in sin. We know the law of Moses. We, we follow Moses. So why don't you just forget about Jesus and just give God the glory for this? And this man who's not a theologian, probably never read this. Well, he never read the scriptures because he couldn't see, but probably had not had the same experience educationally in the, in the word of God that others had had. And he goes, listen, I don't know what you guys know, but I know this. I was blind, and now I can see. And has it ever been heard that anyone opened the eyes of the blind and it wasn't the Lord? Two. And they excommunicate this guy. Jesus goes and finds him. Says, don't worry, I've got you. Guy worships the Lord. Jesus receives his worship. Don't ever let anyone tell you the Bible doesn't say Jesus is God. He worships the Lord. Jesus receives it. And then Jesus says this, and the Pharisees must be present because it says they were with him and they overheard Jesus. Jesus said, For judgment I am come into this world that they which see might not see, and they that they which see, I'm sorry, that they which see not might see, and that they which see might be made blind. And some of the Pharisees which were with him heard those words and said unto him, Are we blind also? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you wouldn't have any sin. But now you say, we see, therefore your sin remains. Second Corinthians chapter 4 tells us when Paul's talking about the gospel, he explains the problem of why someone's lost. He says, if our gospel's hid, it's hid to those that are, are lost, in whom the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of them which do not believe. The idea is they've chosen not to believe. He blinds their eyes. And as a result, it says, it's lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. In other words, Paul said it this way in, in Romans chapter 1, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. For it, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Even if it is from faith to faith, the just shall live by faith. There is only one thing that has the power to penetrate the darkness of our hearts, of our lost condition. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is power in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the preaching, the sharing of the gospel of Christ. It has the ability to penetrate through the darkness of my lost condition and to open my eyes to the fact that I'm a sinner who needs a Savior and that Jesus is the Savior who did it for me. The gospel is the thing that has the ability to do that. It alone not logic, nothing else. It's the gospel alone that has the power to open my eyes to the truth. Therefore, the only solution to darkness is to respond to the light, the gospel, that God shines in my heart through the sharing of the gospel. 
So if someone is still blinded by the darkness, like John describes in verse 11, like Jesus describes about the the leaders, the Pharisees, the only conclusion we can say is you've never responded to the gospel. So what John is saying here is, listen, if, if this is how you're living your Christian life or your profession of faith, you're still lost. That's why you've never progressed in love. That's why their profession of faith is a lie. I have had times when I've had people in front of me, and they just can't seem to to love. They have problems with this thing, and they just refuse. They're like, well, no, I don't. don't." And at some point, you just got to say, listen, have you ever had a time where you repented of your sins and trusted Christ as your Savior? Because if you've repented, you can't stay like this. This is why it's important to examine myself, not just on the moral test, but on the love test. The reason there are two, but there are three tests, but the reason there's more than one is because there are many out there who comfort themselves by saying, well, I keep all the Christian things. You know, I obey all God's laws, but there's, if there's no love. Remember those first three verses in 1 Corinthians 13? I could speak with the tongues of men and angels. I could be eloquent. I could be supernaturally empowered. But if I don't have love, I'm just making noise. Listen, if if you're in your job or you're talking to your family and, and they don't see love, it doesn't matter how eloquent you explain the, the gospel or how elegant you explain your Christianity or, or how much you profess your love for Christ. All they're hearing is the same thing Charlie Brown heard. Wah, 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 wah. And they don't want to hear it because they don't see anything different. By, this is how all men will know you're my disciples, by the love that you have one for another. So, you know, he goes on, he says, you know, if I, I have the ability of faith to move mountains... You know, but I, but I don't love. I, I've got nothing. I am nothing. I've not become something. And then the final one, you know, if I give everything I have to the poor, if I even give my body to be burned, I become a, burned, I become a martyr for Jesus, and I could still be lost. Because if I don't have love, it profits me nothing. You know, that verse, that really challenging verse when Jesus says there'll be many in that day who say, didn't we do this? Didn't we do this? Didn't we do this in your name? And he's going, I never knew you. Whoa. I like lost my life for you in India or, or some other place because I was there. You were there what? Well, trying to earn my favor? Trying to be a good person? Like, like what were you there for? I never knew you. So we need to have love in the same way that we need to be obedient. So as the band comes up and we're going to take the Lord's Supper, this is a great topic, by the way, too, to celebrate the Lord's Supper on because as we look at this test, this love test, where do you fall? Just like the moral test, answering that question takes honest conversation with the Lord and with yourself. We all struggle to some degree loving other people because, guys, personality's class. That's just life right? There are people that I interact with that they're probably just like, that guy is so weird. And there's some of y'all I probably have had that thought too. And then beyond personality, sometimes we get hurt by things our brothers and sisters do or don't do. Sometimes Christians sin against each other. It happens. And then sometimes 
no one's sinned and no one's done anything wrong, but we make a wrong assumption and think they've done something wrong. It still hurts. There are all sorts of reasons why it not come, might not come easy to love a brother or sister in Christ, but someone who is born again has the Holy Spirit living inside of them saying all the time that you're struggling, that's your brother, that's your sister, and they mean the world to me. So, if you're responding to God's Spirit when you know, He speaks to you about that and you're progressing and growing in this wonderful paradox of Jesus' command to love one another, then rejoice this morning. That's evidence you belong to Jesus. That's evidence of the supernatural work of God in your life. But I would leave this last thought with you. If last Sunday and this Sunday, if someone's face or someone's name or maybe multiple faces and names keep popping in your head, well then, you know your, where your next part of progress is. Like you know where the Lord's saying, hey, this is the next part of growing in love, is loving this person the way I say. And so as we meditate and think on and reflect and worship Jesus for his great love for us by leaving his throne above in heaven and coming down to earth, taking on a body, and then that body being broken, drinking that cup of the wrath of God that we could drink the cup of redemption, that we could be in Christ and joint heirs with Christ. As we do that and we sing, I want to encourage you, make a commitment this morning to be friendly to that person. Make a commitment to treat them like family, not like an enemy. To forgive them for the hurts that they've caused you. To love them like Jesus does. Amen? Lord, we give you this time, our hearts, to be moved and changed by you. Have your way. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.